back to GEMS with Genesis Amaris Kemp. With me today is Dr. Kimya Nuru-Dennis. A little bit about Dr. Kimya. She is an activist, sociologist, and criminologist, educator, and researcher. She is also the founder of 365 Diversity, but she also has other things that are going on in her wheelhouse. So I'm going to let Dr. Kimya introduce who she is because you know what? A bio is just a bio and I would be remiss if I did not let her share all her incredible accolades because she is definitely multifaceted. So welcome Dr. Kimya. Thank you so much, Genesis. I so appreciate you. Thank you so much. So yeah, I'm Dr. Kenya Nuru-Dennis, activist, educator, and founder of 365 Diversity. So my business is education consulting and medical and health equity work. So I work to change everything about libraries, academic programs, trainings, in all capacities for every organization that is doing more than official statements, doing more than anti-racism trainings, doing more than bias trainings, doing more than book club gatherings. I tell people we are, we have centuries of black and indigenous activism scholarship on the Western hemisphere alone and hundreds of thousands of years of African knowledges, intellectualism, sciences, mathematics, Asian, indigenous, Aboriginal, everything around the world. So that's the foundation for my knowledge and activism. I come from a knowledge-based Black family. We are all descendants of unfortunate transatlantic slavery that does not ever surpass us being descendants of centuries of Black knowledge and scholarship on the Western Hemisphere. So don't get that twisted. So I am here to show our people that doing this work is not based on the bestseller book. It's not based on making sure you keep white people happy if we're talking about racial justice. It's based on making real changes. And thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And today, listeners and viewers, we are going to be discussing K through 12, as well as college and university curriculum. And what does that entail? What do we need to do to move the needle forward in the curriculum? And how can we bring about change to create the much needed that we want to see? Because if we don't talk about what needs to be changed, how are we going to see that change come to fruition? So Dr. Kimya, tell us a little bit more on why you are so prevalent about K through 12, as well as college and university education. And just a little bit more that Dr. Kimya did not share. She used to be a professor at a university, right, Dr. Kimya? Yes, I used to be full-time professor. So uh, I still teach courses for some schools, but I used to be full-time. I was tenured associate professor. And in 2011, I created an academic program. So in addition to hiring adjunct faculty and full-time faculty, I was in charge of creating courses, selecting course material, doing annual program assessments and evaluations for accreditation process, and also helping libraries constantly and especially annually to evaluate what they have. So that's how I know in addition to my being 
a product of predominantly black rich and public schools in Richmond, Virginia. I know that these curriculums, these tests, these textbooks, these journal articles, these libraries, everything can be changed the same way it was created by people. So that's how I specialize in this work. I don't take no for an answer because no means that they want to do a hashtag and add a couple of books here and there while pretending you're learning real knowledge versus certain people's version of knowledge. So then question here, because when I was taking some of my courses in college and you know when they tell you okay for this course you're going to need this textbook and the textbook may be the eighth edition that you need for the class but then you compare the seventh edition to the eighth edition and not much has changed but the seventh edition is cheaper especially whenever you are a college student and you may not be making a certain amount of money and you're trying to get your coursework done while trying to you know put yourself through school so why is it so important for us to get the relevant edition of the book? Why can't we just get an older edition and we could just photocop pages from somebody who has the eighth edition or the professor could do us, you know, a little bit of service and just say, hey, for those of you who have the seventh edition, I'm just going to give you the handouts for the eighth edition because I feel like college is already expensive. It's already a business. And some of the information that is being teached is very outdated in my opinion. What would you say to that being not only an educator, but also having went through the educational system? Yes, so that's part of the profitable publication process. So sometimes you'll have authors and editors who will change a bit here and there, and then they'll release a whole different book. And we're expected to just buy it because sometimes bookstores will no longer carry the older edition of the book. And same thing with libraries sometimes. So thankfully there are professors, myself included, who I do free resources now. So when I teach courses now, everything is a, a virtual textbook and I add journal articles, but I also focus on publicly accessible writings. So me as a black woman activist scholar, I believe that knowledge should not be protected like that. I, should, I believe it should be publicly accessible through internet search engines and through internet search engines, you should still be able to make sure you know what's factual versus somebody putting everything out there and expecting people to believe whatever is out there. But thankfully there's publicly accessible research, writings, including writings by people like myself that you can find everywhere. And so some of us, Professors around the world are doing that. There's some professors in USA and Canada who are starting to do that as well. And the whole idea is that students are already paying tuition for schools that require tuition. So now they don't have to pay anything extra to access the resources. The reason also why they do newer editions of books is because data does change, information does change. So for me, I have a background in criminal justice. I specialize in Black health, Black mental health, Black suicide, so data can change. Also, if we're talking about more inclusive data, for we're talking about centuries, five centuries of medical racism, scientific racism, sexism, homophobia, and so forth. So we also want to change the people represented in creating the data and collecting the data and writing it. 
So a lot of times you're going to have to pick up some new books, some new journal articles and some new writings just to get a few Black authors, to get a few women authors, to get a few transgender people authors. And the list goes on and on, including if you add religious equity inclusion. So the problem, though, is it becomes expensive when the people in charge of academic programs do not create boundaries, when they don't check and see what's on this faculty member syllabus, how much are they having people pay, including in certain science courses, because that's another form of elitism. And that ranking that's especially based in European white form of academia and schools, first of all, for the people who do not know, unfortunately, schools have existed for thousands of years. It was not created by European white people. Universities were not created by European white people. I have to say this over and over again, because so many people, when they think universities, they're thinking these you know, 17th century European white models based on these prestige rankings and top tier rankings and research one rankings that put white people at the top. And then you have indigenous schools, historic black colleges and universities. And we're supposed to pretend that white people are the creators of all of this stuff. And we are just knocking on the door saying, hey, can we come up in this knowledge realm? And so we wanna understand that. So that's why those of us who talk about changing how education is presented and making it something that you don't have to go into debt for, that's important because literally knowledge is not expensive. Yes, as faculty, we wanna get paid and so forth. But I tell people all the time, you gotta realize when you're in the wrong line of work. Like if you're only an educator to get paid, you're in the wrong line of work. If you're only a medical and health professional to get paid, you're in the wrong line of work and the list goes on. So that's why I encourage educators to say, can we find something that doesn't cost either anything or it costs just maybe $10 and students can find ways to access that $10 if they don't have it. Mm, I would love to see that because I was recently... I recently joined in in a movement it's called the color of change and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that movement and they're talking about the black woman's brunch and how to how they're pushing to illuminate student um, student loan debt within the black women in our community of those who identified as women of color because the amount that we're paying for for education in this country is astronomical in comparison to those who don't look like us and there are people who are coming out of college with whether it's a bachelor's a master's or their doctorate with six figures debt and I said wow and they're saying we have to do something about it because the amount that we're paying for education is different in comparison to somebody who does not look like us and we want to be afforded the education because for those who choose to work in a corporate setting or etc one we're already being judged by the color of our skin we're being judged on what university we went to and then we're also being judged by what type of degree that we have. And if we don't have that degree or that piece of paper to validate the experience that we may be bringing to the table, they're gonna easily dismiss us when in actuality we have 
the experience, we have the education and et cetera, but then what you're paying us is not equitable to the amount that we pay for our degree, as well as it's not equitable to, you know, our counterparts who don't look like us. So how can we rally for that change in the school system to really get them to see it from our perspective? It's not that we're trying to do tit for tat, but let's make it make sense if that. Well, so I believe in tit for tat. So uh, we're talking about underserved, underrepresented, uh, minoritized groups. So we can talk about Black people in general, which I'm Pan-African, pro-Black, staunch gender equity, Black women, also disability, Black women. This is a local, national, and international problem because the moment, for example, Black students say we need to fight for equity in education, this literally happens everywhere around the nation and everywhere around the world. What they'll say is, okay, we're gonna add more black folk. But then they take it to an international perspective. They'll say, okay, we'll bring more black people from South America. We'll bring more black people from Canada. We'll bring more black people from Nigeria, from Kenya. And you'll notice that doesn't happen when you're talking about our people in the homeland. You'll rarely hear schools say, we'll bring more Black people from America, because that doesn't have the same weight in terms of inclusion, right? Right? So here's why a lot of schools will say they're going to take an international approach, because that's what they use for their quote-unquote diversity, inclusion, and equity data. You're on mute. <laughs> no, no, no. I was vibing with you, and I'm like, is it really diverse? It's not because you are taking a pool from people who are outside of America who already have more advanced education than somebody who was raised here in America who has brought up because just looking at my ancestors from the Caribbean and South America, some of my cousins are more advanced in their educational learning versus here because the stuff that they were learning, I was like, wow. I didn't learn that in school. And so it's shocking. And I'm like, oh my gosh, these people, what are they feeding us? And what, what are they giving? But then you have to be as wise as the serpent and harmless as a dove and say, if you want knowledge, you have to go out and seek that knowledge that you want. So I was just vibing with what you were saying, but continue. Thank, Thank you for vibing, Genesis. So here's some things to think about. There are two things. So when schools, and this includes historically black colleges and universities, they're still white controlled. They're white controlled through funding. They're white controlled through board of trustees, including if it's black people on the board of trustees. They're white controlled through accreditation policies. They're white controlled in terms of who tends to write and publish almost all of the work, including when it's pro-black work and Africana studies work. So when you say our people in the Caribbean and on the continent of Africa are really learning something better than what Black people are learning in USA, this is where I have to challenge that. Because when you actually dissect what's in the libraries and what's in the books in the Caribbean, on the continent of Africa, it's mostly French, British, white people. It's white people stuff, okay? So, so and I've had to explain this because, you know, I, 
when schools talk about equity and they say we're going to take an international approach, they're thinking about people who don't need financial aid and can, play, can pay tuition, right, which helps the schools financially. If the problem with that regarding race is unfortunately many Black people around the world still think that race in terms of inequities and racism and white terrorism is a United States of America thing, which is false because 529 years, the first of all racial categories and racial terrorism from white people is literally every part of the world. So you go to parts of Africa where our people are wearing long weaves, bleaching, unfortunately, their skin, wearing British wigs in court of law. You go to Jamaica and you'll see many medical doctors are still learning British forms of knowledge despite the continent of Africa being one of the origins of medicine and health approaches that conveniently white people have stolen for five centuries because guess who makes the most money when we're talking about meditation studios, yoga studios, Asian medicine centers, even when we're talking about things like white people owning nearly all of the shops that sell incense, sage, and all that, burning candles, white people stole that from around the world. Unfortunately, with the work that I do in medicine and health, when I teach Black medical and health students and Black people who have an MD and they're in residency, even if they're from Nigeria, Jamaica, they come here thinking that they done learned something that was not white-based. And then when you ask them to tell you how much of what you learned was actually written by our people, sometimes they get offended because then they have to think about it. Like, wow, I really read from white people, it was white people. Even if it presented it and said, hey, this is about Jamaican medicine, look at the author, right? Oftentimes white people or co-authored with white people. And so that's where we talk about curriculum changes beyond the tokenism. Tokenism is when we feel like we're empowered, but it's empowerment based on white permission. Okay, wait, let's let's pause right there and dissect mm-hmm. this um, for the listeners and the viewers. So we talked about the education that we get from the textbooks, and you challenge some of your students that you teach to ask them how much how much are they learning from somebody that looks like us? And they get offended, but you say because they have to think about it. But then are there people who look like us who have the ability to put their literary works out there and really get it seen in the masses? Or do they denounce their information because they feel like their information is not valid? Yeah, so we have our people. I mean, our people have written and published for thousands of years, right? And for five centuries on the Western Hemisphere, there's forms of writing and publishing. Our people have have publishing companies. They're not considered quote unquote mainstream because mainstream usually means white, including when it's an almost, you know, exactly. 90% black nation. I mean, we can, I mean, we can talk about various nations where white people or other non-black people are in charge of things like tourism. They're in charge of colleges, universities. They're in charge of and so that's the issue there. Our people do own 
companies. Our people are reviewers and editors for journal articles and books. Our people literally have a year. Some of it was intentionally stolen and discarded. Some of it you can find in libraries. Some of it you can find if you go to an, uh, a journal article survey. Some of it you can find for free online. So when I address African mathematics, indigenous math, thankfully some people have scanned and uploaded entire The difficulty is although you might find like 10 page list of annotated bibliography with all African authors and researchers, a lot of time it's still published by white people because the idea unfortunately is often still that no one will take this seriously unless it's from a white person. Which is sad because now when I'm thinking, because I myself am a Black author, and whenever I think about whenever you're trying to get your books into bookstores, there are some bookstores who you have to send your book, and then you send your book, and they do not want to catalog your book or et cetera. So it's constantly like pulling pulling teeth to get your information out there. And that's why you see a big push for some of the authors who look like you and I, who are now branching out to these Black bookstores. There's more Black bookstores that are being brought up so we can really celebrate our literary works. We can put out information that is true and concrete, that is from us, for us, by us, because nobody else is willing to put that information out there. And it's not to say that our information is wrong or they should discount or discredit it. It's just nobody is giving us a chance to share our literary works and elements. And it's just as valuable as the next man or woman. So we have to constantly fight. And some people are tired of the fight. Whenever I interview different people, they're like, I'm tired of this. And I'm like, you can't say that you're tired of it because if you allow yourself to be tired of it, you're never really going to create that change that you want to see. And it's not, and we're not bashing white people. We just want to hold them accountable because I have white people in my family, just like other people have black people in their family or whatever. We just need to let stuff make sense in this day and age. We need to really hold people accountable and we need to stop letting people just pass judgments and get a, hey, you pass, go get $200, like a Monopoly game. So one thing I always encourage with Black and Brown people around the world, you don't have to announce that you're not bashing white people. White people have five centuries of power, privilege, terrorism around the world that controls almost every part of our lives, even if there are no white people in sight, right? So I really want us to get away from making that announcement about our white friends, a wonderful white person's book that we liked, <laughs> like any of that stuff, because needing that announcement is part of five centuries of and, you know, of course, it started, especially during transatlantic slavery, where we're stolen from, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of hundreds of thousands of cultures. We're stolen from that, but yet we were still told that we have to make sure white people are not mad. And that's what happens with the prison system, the policing, in every single school, medical and health facilities. Black people can be lynched right in front of everyone's eyes 
and all most black people are busy doing is telling white people, we're not mad at you though, life happens. So I encourage our people to no longer do those disclaimers. Let white people be uncomfortable. When I am changing school curriculum, when I am doing program assessments for accreditation, I tell schools, this includes K through 12 and colleges and universities, number one, you don't have to wait for official accreditation standards to change for you to show that you care about inclusion. In other words, the accreditation agencies are white. It's usually almost all white people. And if they're not, it's, it's a lot of anti-Blackness, anti-Asian, Islamophobia, xenophobia in these accreditation agencies. And so if you're going to wait for that to change, then schools are never going to change. They're not going to change because they're controlled by politicians and they're controlled by predominantly white nations or white nations where there aren't many white people, but white people still control a lot of the profit. So when schools say they want to change their curriculum, I say, first of all, whose opinion do you care about like, don't tell me you want to include more real Black work, but now you're going to tell me the work has to be in a form of English that makes white people feel safe. Or the Black work has to be based on getting permission and approval from white progressives, white liberals, white people who voted for Biden in America. Like, Anything that's based on permission from the oppressor means that you don't care about increasing the representation of us. You care about surface level, hashtag, trendy, cool stuff that keeps white people happy. It really has nothing to do with us. So that's one thing I always tell schools. When you come to me, and I used to be chair of a curriculum committee, when you come to me and say you want changes, I always say back to them, do you want changes or do you want what white people are interested in right now? Because those are two different things. Because when white people decide that they're no longer interested, just like they did with Black Lives Matter marches and protests, are you now going to be no longer interested? And this is one thing I always tell Black people in particular around the world, boycotting has to be top on your list. If you're forming collectives and groups, and you say that you're change agents, if you're not prepared to boycott, to disappear from schools, to stop using certain stores and products, to stop paying tuition to a school, to stop showing up, then you're not prepared to really change stuff. Because when these white people and their token Black people and brown people tell you no and you still show up the next day, You've given them a reason to tell you no, because you're not going to change regardless. Mm, okay, so I see your point of view here. So you're pretty much saying in, in this retrospective that if you're not willing to walk away from any and everything that would, you know, stand for what you believe in, then you're not really willing to be that change agent you're being led to. Because if you're not willing to denounce everything and say, I'm not, I'm going to, like, for example, I'm going to stop going to Ulta. I'm going to stop going to Sephora. I'm going to stop buying Fendi, Prada, Gucci, and all of these things. And I'm going to stop spending my money in these places where I know they do not like African-Americans. 
and they don't like people of color or whatever we choose to identify ourselves with, then you're not really taking on a full stance of boycotting because you're doing something that is conducive to your personal gain, but not to your overall mission. Correct. And by the way, I want to highlight that the whole Sephora Gucci thing, I ain't never bought none of that stuff. I am... I don't believe in spending money on stuff like that in the first place. So that's another way to think about how we shape our reality. Because when people say I'm about to spoil myself with some Gucci, I'm like, that does not sound fun to me. That just doesn't sound fun. Um, but also, I want to highlight, I am not African-American. I am African Black person who is a descendant of people who were forced on the Western Hemisphere and specifically in what is now called United States of America on stolen indigenous land and raped, murdered, and controlled people. So this also shapes how we define ourselves. Yes, there are Black people who are patriotic. There are Black folks who are patriotic in Canada, United States of America, France, Europe, Italy. I tell Black folk, if you want to be patriotic, okay. But if you're going to sing a national anthem regardless of how you're treated, then again, there has to be an incentive for changes to happen. It, we're, we're never going to be able to boycott every single thing because like literally when this is one exercise that I do with my work, I tell people to write down everything in your life that you don't create. So like unless you live off to a rural area somewhere around the world where nobody can find you and you do everything yourself, you're using other people's resources. And even if it's black made, black owned resources, you gotta ask where these black folk got it from. Cause a lot of our people get resources from elsewhere as well before we patronize those businesses. So it's almost impossible to truly boycott everything, but you have to have a deal breaker. So if you're talking about changing curriculum, you're talking about going to school board meetings and saying, we wanna make these changes to accreditation requirements. When they tell you no, or they'll tell you yes, what they'll usually say when they say yes is we'll form a committee. Don't accept a committee. We have centuries of being thrown committees. Black people have centuries of writing change proposals to schools, to police. We have centuries of writing research for medical and health facilities. And white people keep saying, well, write us a proposal and we'll make changes and never happens, right? Or it will happen long enough for us to disappear because we're happy now and white people go back to the way it started, right? So this is why I tell our people, and you can also apply this if you're talking about gender equity and elsewhere, you have to be prepared for the worst. What you laughing about? I'm laughing because you're just coming in hot with all with all these nuggets and it's and it's um it's not funny but it's so true because I could hear it from a sense not just from the educational sense but from the home ownership sense whenever you're going up against your HOA and you're bringing things into play that you want things to be changed so that's why I'm laughing from it even though it's a it's a different setting. It's so true because what you're regurgitating, it happens everywhere, not just in the school system, but go ahead and continue, Dr. Kimya. It is funny though, because we think about like, we literally, like there's thousands of years of activism demanding changes, protests, boycotts, but yet and still, despite hundreds of thousands of years of humans fighting each other and demanding changes, we, and particularly minoritized groups such as Black folk, 
minoritized, not meaning we're not empowered and intellectual, but meaning that the oppressor keeps forcing that on us. We keep pretending we're starting from scratch, despite literature. We have tons of writings. We have our people who are step-by-step. We have Black elders around the world who are like, they're tired because they like, after a while, they're kind of like, okay, I'm just going to live through life and make changes. So this is why I tell Black people, if you're talking about changing curriculum, changing academic programs, you can request changes to books, you can request professors do better at pedagogy, meaning don't say you know how to reach people with different learning styles when it's clear you really don't. Um, Like COVID-19, a lot of the people that people are talking about like educational oppression during COVID, I'm like, this is literally centuries of the same thing, like literally the same thing, because like this is not the first disease, it's just the first disease that has hit white people such that white people around the world often don't care enough to change things, but they care enough to be like, dang, this this is awful, right? So I tell teachers K through 12 and colleges, universities and the decision makers and administration people, stop acting like every tragedy is a new thing. Like you have centuries of warnings. And when people say, well, I'm new at this job. Okay, but why'd you choose this career if you ain't research the stuff that came before you? Like if you literally do not have a background in education and pedagogy, this should not be your first runaround. You need to learn some stuff before they give you your first training. And I tell teachers this all the time, stop telling young people in particular to shoot for the stars. You're gonna be somewhere, but you ain't doing that your daggone self as the teacher. You're not learning anything out of your own comfort zone. You're not challenging the establishment. You telling children that you're gonna be the next Martin Luther King Jr. They don't want the children to be the next Malcolm X or you know, Marcus Garvey. They want it to be something that white people feel comfortable because they ain't read Mark, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s works. But they're like, you're gonna be the next Martin Luther King Jr. But the teachers themselves ain't trying to be the next Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They be up in they smiling, crying to themselves, acting like they can't do nothing. Then they come to me talking about, well, Dr. Dennis, I did change a book in my class. I don't believe in bare minimum. So like, if you can change that book, you can make some other changes. Well, I might lose my job. Well, ain't that some stuff? Centuries of our people doing this work being fired from jobs, kicked out of schools, being lynched, raped, murdered, used as laboratory experiments for centuries. But you telling me you might get fired and I'm supposed to be like, dad, you right. No, either you want change to happen or you don't. And if you want change to happen, you're not gonna just wait for the person sitting beside you, like everybody nudging each other. If y'all just gonna nudge each other and nobody wants to really step out there and might lose friends as well. If you're not willing to do that, I really want people to just zip it, including on social media, no more hashtags, admit that you don't care enough. And for the people who do care about changing curriculum, changing accreditation, changing libraries, they need to be the ones to say, look, let's unite across all these different nations and cities and states. We're not the first person to do this. We're not the first group to do this. We ain't by ourselves. Literally, there are people around the world doing this work. And that's why I'm big at collaboration.
And I love that, um, that you're big on collaboration and that you're saying it's not just this one group, but it needs to be all of us coming together collectively to really be the change that we want to see. So as we wind down, Dr. Kimya, what would you want your call to action to be to the listeners and the viewers? Because it starts with all of us putting in the work so we could see the necessary change that we want today, tomorrow, and the and future generations to come because the change may not happen right now, but as long as we're putting in the work, then it's leading us to the direction and where we want to go. But we have to hold those people in power accountable for their actions. Yep. So my call to action is always honesty. So we're not going to end oppressions. Oppressions are the existence of humans. So like when we talk about white power, racism, that's going to exist as long as humans exist because we can't get rid of racial categorization because that's colorblind racism, what sociologists call colorblind racism. So we do our part while we're here and we leave groundwork for future generations. Don't do your part and take it with you to the grave or to the cremation. You literally have to lay it as the groundwork for everyone after you. So as it pertains to changing curriculum, that's what school boards school accreditation agencies, teachers, school decision makers, families, taxpayers, and voters. The small percentage of people who care, it's a very small percentage, no matter what they say, they need to do their work and lay a groundwork. So when I say do your work, I don't wanna hear about any more committees. I don't wanna hear about any more official statements. If you're doing trainings, and all you're doing is talking about definitions and theories, don't ever tell me that. <laughs> like literally, you need to be doing workshops where you're changing policies and procedures. That's what I do. I change curriculums, I change policies, and then we come back and I do annual assessments or six month assessments. So this is why I tell people, if you're truly talking about doing something, like literally, when we talk about like white power, Schools that make changes, a lot of times when they make changes, it's because white people have just shown that they're not going to tolerate no more nonsense. And even during COVID, like we talk about masking and stuff like that. So, so there's so many. So I just, I just challenge people to admit that they're just accustomed to complaining and that's it. And then for the people who actually are wanting to make changes, Literally, there are people who also want to make changes and you can unite, not, you don't have to agree with everyone about everything, but just see what you can collaborate on. Wow. You guys heard it here. Dr. Kimia Nehru Dennis has said a mouthful about being the change, advocating for change in K through 12, as well as colleges and universities. And it really starts by you holding the accreditation agencies um, into account, holding the Board of Education into account, holding people who have the ability to make change into account, and not just complaining about things, but put actions behind your words and don't just let your words flop to the ground because if you're not really putting actions behind what you're speaking then that change is not going to come and you have to think about it this way 
would you want to be that young man or that young woman going through a certain trial and tribulation because you did not have the ability or you did not have like some people say lack of better words you weren't ballsy enough to just stand up and take that into account and say you know what I'm gonna open my mouth because I know it's not just about me but it's about the people who are coming besides and behind me and I'm going to be that one to lay the foundation because there may be a young child out there who needs you to advocate for them but you may never come in, into contact with that with that child so just think about it that way in my opinion and I hope it really encourages you to get outside of your comfort zone get outside of your nice comfy chair your nice comfy couch and really look at what's going on in society today and say how can I be that person to hold the torch and carry it forward Dr. Kimia anything you want to add before we shut down you know, just the old school phrase, don't talk about it, be about it. And Dr. Kimya will leave us with her contact information, and I will ensure all of her contact info is in the show notes as well. So there is no excuse for not getting into contact with her. If she said something that resonates with you, reach out, don't be a stranger, and let's all educate so we can learn something and Take that with us because what you learn, nobody can dismiss because that knowledge is power. Dr. Kimia, leave us with your contact info. All right. So it's 365diversity.com. And at the top, you'll find the phone number and the email address. Please read the entire website. So speaking of curriculum changes, a lot of times I have to ask teachers to read my whole entire website because like literally you will find a lot of information if you scroll down. So scroll down, read the website, and then contact me if you have questions. Even if you disagree, you are welcome to disagree. But just remember the difference between disagreement and you actually knowing factual information counter to what I said. There's a huge difference. And thank you so much, listeners and viewers, for tuning back into Gems with Genesis Amaris Camp. You just heard Dr. Kimya Nuru Dennis. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, share, like, and comment, and also subscribe to where you're listening on all major podcast platforms. We will be back with some more incredible guests. But until then, peace, love, and lots of blessings. Signing out, Genesis Amaris Camp. And Dr. Kimya Nuru Dennis. Oh.